Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. And we're going to be finishing up verse 6 this morning. We stopped just short of that last week. When you get there, we'll reread the verse. 2 Kings 9 verse 6. Glad for those of you here here. I know we're going to be missing a few people today out for different reasons, illness and so forth. And then I'm sure some of them will join us online. Let's reread verse 6. We're in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 6. And he arose and went into the house. Now that's the young prophet whom Elisha sent to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And he poured the oil on his head. And said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. I remind you that Elisha had given this young prophet an assignment to go somewhere. And that was Ramoth Gilead. To find someone. And that was Jehu who was captain over the military and to do something, to pour oil on his head and anoint him as king over Israel. And we noted that last week the young man went as he was told. He was told to go and he did that. And we noted that some go but they don't do. We'll look further at that in a moment. In speaking to the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, after the story of the Good Samaritan, or really this was part of it, I think, Jesus told this lawyer to go and do thou likewise. He'd asked the lawyer, he said, which of the three was more righteous? And in their treatment of that wounded man on the side of the road, and the lawyer rightly said, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said, go and do Thou likewise, meaning go and have mercy upon others just as the Samaritan had on the wounded man in this story. Let's look at another example of the importance of not just going, but of doing as we focus on this young prophet actually meeting Jehu and anointing him with oil. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Mark 16, 15, Jesus told the disciples, it says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, there's the go, and preach the gospel to every creature. There's the doing. There's the do. You go and you do. That's what he told them to do. Now, why is it so important to go and do? Well, many men... And if you've been around independent Baptist churches or Southern Baptist churches, perhaps other denominations, but I'm very familiar with both of those uh, categories of churches, if you will. Many men do what they call surrendering to the mission field. Or they may surrender to the ministry or surrender to the bus ministry. And what that generally means is that they quit their jobs, in the case of the mission field, 
They quit their secular jobs, go to a bunch of churches, and try to raise financial support from those churches, and then go off to some foreign land where they feel like God has called them, where he's led them. But so many of those who do that never even leave the United States. They go around, they start what they call their deputation, introducing themselves to these churches from whom they hope to gain financial support. And yet they never leave the United States. Or they go and they come back early, disillusioned, not having done what they set out to do. They went, but they didn't do. In fact, as we've found out, Brother Fulton and I have dealt with a lot of these men over the years, over the decades, in one way or another. We've vetted several who've come to our church, either personally or by telephone or some other way of communication, looking for financial support for their mission. And the problem with many of these is that they want to go. They want to go somewhere, but they don't want to do. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. We've heard some of them, and boy, they have this plan. They are going to do this and do this and teach this and set this up and plant this church and go to the next place and do it again. They want to build churches and reach the unreached and, and so forth. So when I say these men want to go and not do, what I specifically mean is the same thing Jesus meant. They want to go, but they don't believe the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. So they can do all the preaching and teaching they want, but they're still not doing. What did Jesus tell us to do? He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. To every creature. The gospel. That means there's just one, right? There's not another. Paul said anybody preaches another, let him be accursed. So there's the gospel. And the gospel is defined. Oh, there's many places you can see it. But the gospel is defined very clearly for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 3 and 4. You can move on a little further in the verses. That Jesus died was buried and rose again on the third day, and then it testified there that he was seen above 500 brethren, the, the greater part of whom remain unto this day in that day. But that's the gospel. So you can go somewhere, but if you're not going to preach the gospel, you're not doing what Jesus said go and do. So the doing is very important, not just the going. Those men who surrender to this mission field in many cases. They, they don't believe the gospel. They believe another, the, the one that looks inward, the one that says you've got to pray this prayer and do all these things and or surrender and be surrendered and all that. Let me just tell you something, by the way. In the King James translation of the Bible, the word surrender is never in there. Or surrendered, surrenders, or surrender. Do you know how I know that? I looked it up. It's not in there. So just like a lot of things aren't in the Bible that get practiced in churches today. 
And that'll rub a lot of people the wrong way who may be steeped in the denomination, the traditions of the denomination, but that's okay with me. I just want to be steeped in what's in the Bible. And if it rubs our so-called denomination the wrong way, then so be it. We need to be rubbed the wrong way. But it shouldn't. If you're one of God's people, then you ought to be glad for the Bible to correct you, not upset not disillusioned, disappointed, angry, sad, but glad to be corrected. And see, these are accursed men because they have preached another gospel, which the Bible says is not another. There's not another good news. They've troubled many. They wanted to go, but they did not want to do what Jesus said, preach the gospel. So no matter what else they teach and preach, And even do, they still didn't do what Jesus commanded. And this young prophet in our text had to believe that he would safely arrive at Ramoth Gilead. He had to believe he would successfully locate Jehu. After all, this was a message from God for him to do this. And he had to believe he could separate Jehu from his brethren and securely deliver and pour that anointing oil on Jehu's head. He had to believe that Jehu would be willing to receive that commandment and not kill him instead. And the young prophet very clearly had grown in his faith, hanging around and learning from the man of God, Elisha. So he went and he did, thereby obeying the commandment. Now look back at verse 7, 2 Kings 9, verse 7, if you're just joining us. And this is... What the young prophet told Jehu after he anointed him. And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Now, we knew God was going to accomplish smiting the house of Ahab, just as Elijah said he would do back in 1 Kings 21. And now we know whom God sent to fulfill that prophecy, that commandment. And the prophet even gives Jehu the reason that he will fulfill this commandment. He says, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. So he didn't just say, hey, Jehu, I want you to go assassinate your king. Don't ask me why. Just do it. He gave him the reason. This is the Lord's vengeance upon this king and on his household, actually, because Ahab's already dead. But his household, those who came after him, this was a righteous cause. If you remember Jezebel killed the Lord's prophets, in fact, all of them except for the 100 whom Obadiah hid in caves. And that was back in 1 Kings chapter 18. We already studied it. She thought she had the Lord surrounded, didn't she? She was hunting down and killing all of those prophets. She thought she had the Lord surrounded, but she was a prideful, hateful, and vengeful woman. And she and her husband have and will continue to pay the price with their own blood and their own shameful deaths and the deaths of their seed. 
Just to remind you, Ahab's death was recorded back in 1 Kings 22, verse 40. So Jezebel only was still alive. Her husband was gone, but so was Ahab's seed. Now let's look at verse 8. As the young prophet continues speaking to Jehu, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, that's a male, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And as we've studied before, God's judgment of the wicked is complete. He's not going to send some of the wicked to hell, or even most of them, but all of them. All who have rejected his son, their savior, the one whom he sent to die for their sins, will perish, just like the wicked house of Ahab and Jezebel. They would all perish. And even though Ahab is Jehu's earthly master, meaning Ahab's household, Ahab's son, God is his heavenly father. And if Jehu is right with God, then he'll aim to please his heavenly father before his earthly father every day. And so should we. Verse 9, And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. These were two wicked kings whom we've already studied. Their houses, their households were cut off by the Lord, by his righteous wrath. And since we studied them at length, we won't do so here again. Verse 10, And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. So the young prophet has not only poured oil on Jehu's head, he's not only told him, you're going to be the king, but his words also condemned the house of Jehu's king and queen to destruction. This is a, in the eyes of this young prophet, this would be a frightful thing to do if you're walking in the flesh. If you don't want to make somebody mad or you're afraid of this imposing man, Jehu, who was a captain, I'd like to hear this young prophet preach his first message. He was bold, wasn't he? I bet he shelled the corn and left nothing under the edge of a dull sword. Jehu could have cut this prophet's head off in a heartbeat. But that possibility did not sway that young prophet from telling Jehu what God said to tell him. And at the end of verse 10, it says this about the young prophet, and he opened the door and fled. So now he's done all three things that Elisha told him to do. Go, do, and flee. Those three things. Don't tarry. Don't chit-chat. Go, do, and flee. Get out of there. Now let's look at verse 11, and we'll spend a few moments in verse 11. Now the young prophet's gone. Then Jehu came forth to the servants of his Lord. This would be the king's servants. And one said unto him, Is all well? 
Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? And he, that's Jehu, said unto them, You know the man and his communication. Why, these servants may have had their ears against the door, been eavesdropping. You notice they called the young prophet a mad fellow. A mad fellow. Get that. Now, the word fellow, if you're looking in your Bible, it's in italics, isn't it? So the word fellow is not in the original Hebrew language. It's added there to give us the sense of what that word means in the Hebrew. But the word mad is. The young prophet came with the word of the Lord, and yet these men called him mad. That that doesn't mean angry. It means one who's raving, who's insane. Somebody who's gone mad, we may have said in time past. Well, why would they call him mad unless they had heard what he said? I doubt he would be considered mad just because he told Jehu, I have an errand to you. Can we go into an inner chamber and talk alone? But what he told Jehu behind closed doors would certainly qualify him as insane or mad in the eyes of the servants of Jehu's Lord. You know, even Jesus was called a madman. Did you know that? In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, John 10, 17 through 19, here's what Jesus said. Therefore doth my Father love me, Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Now he just testified that he'd be resurrected after he was killed. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. There was a division therefore again among the Jews. For these sayings. And many of them said he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Jehu wisely answered these men who called the young prophet a mad fellow. Jehu said ye know the man. And his communication. Because they asked him, why did he come to you? What, what was the reason for his trip? Jehu said, you already know. You know who he is. And you already know what he said. That's why I was of the opinion that they must have eavesdropped on his conversation. Now, the word communication... We've studied it in the New Testament a few times, and it usually means to share, to distribute something you have to another. In Galatians chapter 6, there is a verse that says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. So in other words, the one who's teaching you the word you ought to share with that person in all good things. And that's what people do when they 
give their, their tithes and offerings to the Lord's work at the church, and then the church gives uh, compensation or payment to the pastor or teachers or however they have that done. So that's where that comes from. Well, in the Old Testament here, this Hebrew word for communication has to do with speaking or talking. In fact, one place it's translated as the word babble or babbling. Not like we think it, but let's look at that. Most of the time it's translated as the word complaint. So it lets you know there's a wider variety of applications for the word than you might have thought otherwise. In Proverbs 23, 39, that's the only place it's used as the word babbling. That's where it's translated as the word babbling. And that, has to, that refers to one who tarries long at wine. In other words, they're getting drunk. They're going to babble. However, that's not in keeping with the context in our passage. And based upon the verses after this one, it doesn't appear to me that Jehu just wrote off what this young prophet said as babbling in the sense of ranting madly or drunkenly. But the king's servants certainly characterized him that way, didn't they? Example, when you read what the media, generally liberal, what the media writes about Christians, Christian pastors, you will see that they categorize us as babblers. Oh, listen to all that, ranting and raving. In other words, in their own high-dollar words, they call us mad fellows. We're called hateful and bigoted and all sorts of negative adjectives when all we're doing is telling people what God says about sin unapologetically. Now, I'm going to tell you there are some pastors who do that and who try to be as ugly and shocking as they can. They want some attention. And that's not how we do that. There are others who will say what they have to say, but then when they get confronted by some group, they'll say, well, now, now, now that, I wasn't really meaning that, and they back off. They'll say it like it should be said, but then they back off later. We don't do that either. We preach the truth in love, and that's our aim, and, if we, and we do that by the grace of God, not because we have some superior speaking ability among our fellow mortals, but it's the grace of God. And by sticking with what God's word says, by quoting scripture to someone and telling them this is what this means, then we're being honest with God, we're being honest with our fellow man, honest with ourselves. But we're not mad fellows. Let's bring it down closer to home here. In the past, there have been some Facebook warriors who've accused this church and its ministries of being cult-like when we're actually the opposite of that. We don't have an isolated commune somewhere far off where we control the entry and exit and daily lives of our members. 
We don't have a compound where every aspect of someone's life is under a microscope and depends on our judgment as to whether it's right or wrong. We don't separate wives from their husbands like the Branch Davidians did and then the children. We don't have any of that. We want families to worship together. We don't, by God's grace, we don't substitute our pastoral authority for the God-given authority that's to be exercised by a father over his own family. We're not in charge of your family. If you're a father, mother, you are. In fact, there are people who have been confused by cults, perhaps even in one, and who have sought refuge in the truth that this church and its ministries have provided here at Central and on the websites. And we point people to their own Bibles. That's what we do. That's why when you bring your Bible or you scroll to it or however you do it, we're trying to show you that in the very thing that you hold in your own hands that you are capable of reading, here's the truth right here. Now you look at it and you say, yes, that's what it says. Now I understand it a little bit better. We point you to those Bibles and try to teach you the sense and the meanings of the words and the doctrines. And then you know what we do? We don't tell you, now everybody get back in the compound and shut the gate behind you. We send you away to your own homes. Get out of here. Go home. You go over there and you go there where you live. And before long we're going to have a bar gate and it's going to shut you out of the parking lot. And then we're going to open it so you can come back in and do this again. And then we're going to keep the, the street racers out of our parking lot. And we send you home to meditate on these truths that you learn. And to do so and to live them out under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Not some authoritarianism that we project here like a handful of power-hungry dictators. I don't want to lead your family. I don't want you to lead mine. I want you to lead your own family, and I want you to have the ability, the knowledge of how to do it right. Because who do you ultimately answer to? Answer to God, don't you? Whether I live or die or move off somewhere, whether the pastor is your pastor in five years or, or five more minutes, hope that's not the case. And once people understand what God's Word says, then we expect them to seek God for the ability and grace to obey it. Not to call us every five minutes and say, now, now, Brother Andy, I, I was at the supper table and I had this impure thought, what should I do? Take it to the Lord, put it in a basket, give it to God. Jesus died for that sin. I'm going to tell you the same thing every time. I'm going to tell you just like I do the young people who work with me in law enforcement, who call me and ask me in the middle of a traffic stop or on the scene of some sort of investigation, uh, here, here's what I got. What, what do you think it is? And I ask them, have you looked it up yet? Have you opened the law book to see whether you have an assault or whether you have this or that? Have you opened the law book to see if the thing you're wanting to stop that car for is a violation? You haven't? Well, you do that, and you call me back when you've located it, and then if you don't understand it, I'm going to help you understand it. That's what I do with them. 
in here. We take you to the Word of God. We don't say, well, there it is, figure it out for yourself. We say, here it is. So for your future reference, for those of you who take notes, whether written or mental, you'll know where to go, and then you'll understand why that passage applies to the situation that you're in. We don't demand that you fear us, revere us, or even hear us. But all that being said, we're not mad fellows simply because we tell people what God's word says like this young prophet told Jehu. Now back in your text and look at verse 12. Jehu's told them, you know who this was and you know what he said to me. Verse 12, and they said, it is false. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus spake he to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. They said, It is false. In the previous verse, they had asked Jehu, Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? So this verse proves, I believe, that they already knew what the young prophet said. They either heard it themselves or somebody told them very quickly. And just like most weak-kneed servants of the king, they said it's false. After all, who was their master? Their master was the current king. And so for them to hear that some fellow came out of nowhere and told Jehu, Hey, these fellows, the guy who's their master, <laughs> you're fixing to be their master. They said, Oh, no, it's false. There are many reasons they could have said that. They may have been afraid, well, Jehu's going to take us out. He's going to kill our master, and he's going to take us out with him. But they tried to persuade those who were within their hearing, particularly Jehu, that God's word was not true. That what God said was going to happen wasn't going to happen. And Satan has at least three ways, probably more, but at least three ways, he persuades people, perhaps you, to believe God's word is not true. So get this down. First of all, he uses doubt. Doubt. D-O-U-T, if you don't want to use the B that serves no purpose, but it's D-O-U-B-T, doubt. Watch how he does this to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Genesis 3, 1. And remember, he came in the form of a serpent. So when you see serpent here, you see Satan. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? By misquoting God just a little bit, Satan tries to introduce doubt to Eve. What did God actually say about the trees of the garden when he spoke to Adam, to Eve? Well, the first thing he said is back in chapter 2 in verse 16. Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now, that's the first thing he said. They're all yours. And the second thing God said was, But 
of the tree, that's just one, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. It was a two-part command. First, God gave them the permission to eat of all the trees, and the second was a prohibition against the one that was in the midst of the garden. That's it. And that's how he did it. That's the order in which he did it. Now, imagine this. If you back up into Genesis chapter 2, where God's talking to, uh, to Adam, giving him and, and Eve, of course, because that was his wife, the commandment about the trees. Imagine if God had only said what Satan said here. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And just left it at that. Boy, that's confusing, isn't it? That would have caused them to be confounded. Even Adam would not have known, first of all, from which trees they can eat. Because God said, you, Satan said that God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Well, that begs the question, well, which ones can we eat from and which ones can we not eat from? Which ones are forbidden? And in that situation, perhaps they would unknowingly eat from the wrong tree and be condemned. So there's one way God causes, or excuse me, Satan persuades people to not believe God's word is doubt. The second way is denial. Denial. After Eve told Satan what God said about the consequences of eating from the tree, her answer was, well, Satan, God actually said we shall not eat of the trees nor touch them. He didn't say they shouldn't touch them, but that's a good idea. For in the day we eat, we'll die. Now listen to what Satan's answer was to her in Genesis 3 verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Satan flat out denied God's word and tried to persuade Eve to deny it as well. He didn't try to get her to doubt right here. He'd already done that. He said, no, that's not true. That's just not true. And in a third way that Satan tries to persuade people to believe God's word is not true is deception. Deception. In Genesis 3, 5, listen to what the serpent followed up with. He said, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, that is of that tree that's forbidden, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan may as well have said God was a mad fellow. That's essentially what he was saying. God's a mad fella. Uh, he knows better than that. Why, what he said is not true. Here's what he actually said. And just like the king's servant said to Jehu about this young prophet. Satan led Eve to believe not only that she would not die, but that she would actually be as gods with a little g, knowing good and evil. And that strategy worked. Because in the very next verse, she ate of that forbidden fruit from that tree and gave to her husband who was with her and he did eat. 
I love the kingdom truths that Brother Fulton gives from time to time. He'll say, here's a kingdom truth. Write it down. And they're worth writing down. Well, here's a kingdom truth. Very short, very easy to remember. Where Satan brings confusion, God brings clarity. Where Satan brings confusion, God brings clarity. And Satan is not through bringing confusion to people. You know that, don't you? He's not done. Especially to those who seek to know God's word. He's willing to debate God's word with you as he tries to persuade you in your mind. That's not true. Or here's what God actually means. Or hey, put that off for another day. Yeah, it it may be true, but you don't need to worry about that right now. You're going to live for a long time. You're a young person. You're healthy. And so forth. But one day, Satan will be through deceiving people. Because God's going to destroy him along with his whole kingdom by sending them to the lake of fire which burneth forever and ever. I don't apologize for being long in Genesis But I will make one more observation that's so relevant to our day. Did you notice that Satan didn't approach Adam? He approached Eve. He never said to Adam, hey, God is a mad fella. He's holding back on you. He went to Eve. And when Eve turned her heart away from God and to Satan's counsel, I feel certain that Satan knew Eve would easily be able to turn Adam's heart without any trouble. And here's the application, and I've seen it play out. When a man is weak in the faith, or even lost, he'll almost always try to please his wife first before thinking about pleasing God. And once he goes down that path, he cannot please God. You can't stay on that path and say, I'm I'm still pleasing God. I've often thought about what happened or what would have happened had Adam turned down the fruit after Eve had eaten it. Have you ever thought about that? Wondered, well, what would have happened? But I don't spend too long on that thought because the reality is that is what happened. And it still happens now. Men, the Bible tells you to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. For Adam to have loved Eve this way, well, I think first of all, he would have stepped out in front and said, Hey, whoa, fella, that's my wife you're talking to. (laughs) God told us, here's the law and it's about that long. And that's what we're going to follow. So you best be slithering on your way somewhere else. But he didn't. But had Eve handed them that and said, Dear, I love you. And you've sinned. You've eaten from that tree. I'm not going to sin too. How is that going to make things better? I love you too much to sin. To love Eve would have been to refuse that fruit, wouldn't it? The world can't get a hold of that. And although your wife may call you a mad fella 
for holding true to God's word, being faithful in church, praying without ceasing, refusing to partake in her sin, you hold true to it. Love her that much. Be as Jehu. Don't be swayed by what others say about you believing in God's word. Let's look in verse 13. So this is referring to these servants, to all those who were around Jehu at this time. It says, Then they hasted, that means they hurried, and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. Now these servants want to show their loyalty to Jehu. When before they forbade that young prophet thinking he was a madman, they mocked his words. And it's difficult right here to tell whether this was genuine, but I think it was done out of either mockery or fear, probably fear, that Jehu would kill them when he killed their master. Just take them all out. Watch out for people who patronize you, for people who fawn over you and just pay you excessive compliments, especially when you first meet them. Let their actions over time show you their sincerity. That's how you earn my trust, and I don't trust anybody completely, 100%, only God. You know why? It's not because I don't love the people in my life. It's because they're flesh and bone just like I am. There are some people I trust to 99.99 like my wife. There's not anybody in this whole earth I trust more than my wife. But I trust God more. And if I didn't trust God more, I'm not loving my wife like I ought to. If Adam had trusted God more than his wife, he would have shown the kind of love that God expects from us. Do I please men or do I please God? That's the question, and the answer is obvious. For these people who patronize you, like perhaps these servants did Jehu, oh, Jehu is king, and blow the trumpets and do all of these outward things. See how they treat you when you've lost your job or your health or your influence or you're in despair, you're depressed. Right now, Jehu is favored by the Lord and is about to be king. So, of course, these servants are going to be on their best behavior. But I bet you he sleeps with one eye open concerning these men. Verse 14, so Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram is the king. Now, Joram had kept Ramoth-Gilead, he and all Israel, because of Hazael, king of Syria. Remember, Joram was injured in that battle. But King Joram was returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If it be your minds, now he's talking to the people around him, If it be your minds, then let none go forth nor escape out of the city to go tell it in Jezreel. 
We learned in chapter 8 in verse 16 that Joram, this Joram right here, a lot of Jehorams and Jorams get mixed up, but this Joram right here was the son of Ahab. And what was Jehu going to do? He's taken out the son of Ahab. He's taken out the household of Ahab. And we learned that this conspiracy here was not a wicked one because God had commanded that the house of Ahab be slain by Jehu for what happened to God's people and the prophets. And to the men with him, Jehu gave the command, and he gave it with one condition. He said, if it be in your minds. If it be in your minds. That was the condition. Every man had taken their garments and proclaimed Jehu as king. And the trumpets had been blown. So, if it be your minds means, if this is what you want, if you're sincere about this, that's what that means. Interestingly, the word for mind or minds here is the same as the word for life. Back all the way in Genesis chapter 1 verse 20. Where the God had commanded the waters to bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. So this expression, if it be your minds, means that these men who proclaim Jehu as king better be wholeheartedly in agreement with that outward expression. Just as wholeheartedly as a man proves he is living by being alive, by having the breath of life in him. That was the condition, if it be in your minds, the command was let none go forth nor escape out of the city to go till it in Jezreel. Jehu wanted no spies, not even one, to run to the current king Joram, who was in Jezreel recuperating from his injuries. He did not want one spy going to Jezreel and saying, Hey, king, guess what Jehu's fixing to do? Otherwise, that king Joram would have time to rally his defenses to build up the military lines, and put up a good fight. But you know what? Even if he'd done that, God would still prevail. And we'll close right there and pick up with verse 16, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the instruction your word gives us. Thank you for the Spirit of God who is our teacher and for the grace you give man whom you've appointed to teach your word, because we are otherwise frail and incapable instruments to convey such righteous words and doctrine to the people. And Lord, as we continue in our worship into the next hour, we pray for those who come that their hearts would be open to truth. And Father, we would put away any incorrect notions we have about what your word says about what you expect of us, about what is available to us through your Son, and that you would show them the grace of Christ and to the unsaved that you would draw them to the finished work of Jesus that he accomplished on behalf of sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.